Bad enough I got to hear myself once, let alone hear it twice. <laughs> Think, speaking of hearing myself, Jason wanted me to announce that if you got one of the early uh, CDs that's not working properly, you can go back and exchange it with him, and uh, they'll take care of it. We got a little March Parade of Kids here. That's great. Goes hop along Cassidy in there. She rides off into the sunset. We love kids. I'll tell you what. Just appreciate the starting that ministry that God gave us. And the thing I like about it is everybody gets a shot. Old Jason's in there today. You know, he's he's uh, he's going to teach them baseball. <clears throat> but anyway, no. It's just good. It's good for everybody to take a shot at raising and teaching kids. I, I think it's great. So and we don't force anybody to do it. You know, if you ain't ready, we we won't we won't put you in it. But uh, we we enjoy it. And uh, people we got in there are good. They love kids and. Uh, it's just, a, it's just a fun thing. Well, in the book of Nehemiah chapter 3, as you know, we have been talking about building the church because that's what we're doing. And I decided to teach that this book because this book is, to me, is such a, a practical a book, uh, even though it's found in the Old Testament, it's such a practical book that really shows uh, the process by which uh, you build a church because a church isn't, isn't, isn't a building. It isn't bricks. It isn't mortar. It's people. And our responsibility is to reach people. And uh, we get the idea, you know, that a church today, and, and we're going to talk about why we get those ideas in a little bit, but we get the idea that a church today is, you know, is uh, just a place that you go, uh, that it's a building. And we see, uh, you know, back in the Middle Ages, you know, the, uh, they built great cathedrals. And those great cathedrals are noted uh, as great churches. But you know what? All those great cathedrals are dead now. There's nobody going to those churches in Europe. You know why? Because the church is in the building. Church is people. Now, when you look at the Old Testament, you see a literal application of this because, uh, as I've said already many, many times, and the thing that I want to drive home the point is that the nation of Israel, uh, Jerusalem in particular here, is in great disarray. They have been taken over by Gentiles and Gentile philosophy of life which is an unsaved, unregenerate philosophy that destroyed the program of God and left the, uh, the, uh, the city of God in, in a great disarray and a great mess. And uh, when, when Nehemiah goes down to look at it, as you read here in the beginning of the chapter, he sees it all in the mess that it's in, and he goes and grabs some people and says, Hey, look, in the midst of all this carnage, in the midst of all this destruction, let's do a work for God and try to do it right. And by taking those steps, he begins to rebuild the wall. And on this wall are nine gates. And these nine gates are the way that you go into the city. And I told you last week we talked about the dung gate. That's the gate that comes out. There's eight gates that you go in. There's one gate that brings the trash out. We talked about how that Bible doctrine is the key for any church. It has to be the basis by which the church is built on. It has to be the basis by which your life is built on. And when that thing is put in its place in the right fashion, you're going to become a strong Christian, and the church is going to become a strong, a, a, a strong church. That's all there is to it. And today, we're going to talk about the next gate down here in verse 15, and that's what the verse says down here, but the gate of the fountain, the fountain gate. Now, the fountain gate represents our worship and our fellowship with God. And that's probably a very, one of the most key aspects of, of this church and your own personal life. Because the word Christian, uh, excuse me, the word worship uh, is a Christian word, but we've lost the concept of it today. I mean, we think that worship means prayer. We think it means singing. We think that, you know, when you go to a church service and, you know, you have a nice warm feeling because somebody sang a nice song or you feel like God has touched you or whatever, we think that's worship. I've even been to churches that, that talked about having a worship service. I've even heard a guy get up and say, worship God this morning with your tithes and your offering. And uh, we've come uh, where we've, we've lost that. We've come to the aspect where we have really, uh, we've really lost the concept of that. And when you get back to studying the gate of the fountain, you really see and understand what worship and fellowship is. And what we're going to do today is what we always do. We're going to go to the Bible and we're going to define the fountain gate. And we're going to define from the Bible what worship is and what fellowship is. So you understand it. This church has to have an avenue of worship. Having an avenue of worship doesn't do you any good if you don't understand what worship is. I'm reading a book right now called Secular Humanism. 
And it's a book that was written a number of years ago. And I, I, it's a book that I, I really have never read. I had it for years and never got around to it. And I was getting my study all put back together and going through it. And I saw this little book. It's called Secular Humanism. And I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to look at that. Well, I just sat down for a minute, take a break from what I was doing, you know, to look at it. Next thing I know, five hours later, I was still in the book. Then I decided, you know what, I'm going to make this a study, and sometime I'm going to teach this. So I started to get my little notebook and pad out and go to work on it, and I started to outline this whole thing. And, and uh, it, it's one of the greatest little books I ever read. And what it does, it shows how, it shows how that, this, that, that there was a plan to destroy this country and in time, destroy the church or the churches of this country. And uh, when you read the book, back in 1933 and again in 1973, there was two documents that were written called the Humanist Manifesto. There was Humanist Manifesto One and the Humanist Manifesto Two. And what that was, it was a document written at, of the goals of humanists, and it was signed by all the great humanists of the day. And it was a doctrine. Uh, it was a. It was a piece of paper. Uh, talking about what their goals were, how they were going to accomplish, what they believed, and, and uh, how they intended to accomplish these goals. And let me just say, they are ahead of schedule as we speak here in the year 2003. But one of the goals, and there was a number of them, but one of the goals that they had, and I bring it up because of where we're at in our text today and where we're at in our message today, one of the goals that they had was to change the system of values in our country. They wanted to change the system of values from a system that was built on trusting in God and change it to a system that's built on trusting in man. Because, you know, humanism in its rarest basic form simply gets rid of God and puts man in the place of God. And one of the goals that they wanted, one of their major goals, one of the things that had to happen was they had to change the value system in America, in our country, from one that was believing in God's standards to one that believes in man's standards. And they've accomplished that. And uh, this book goes in, and it's, uh, then I got three or four other books that I found that all added the thing together. And one of these days when we get to the point, we're going to have a great study on what's wrong with America and, and help you better understand uh, what's going on. But anyway, but as I began to look at that, I began to realize, well, that's exactly what they've done. That's exactly what they've done. They have, they have changed the, the dynamics of America. They have changed the, uh, the standards in America, the values in America. And that's why America's in the chaos that it is today. I mean, stop and think. You remember back in the 50s, uh, even in the 40s, some of the old movies that you'll watch on television, you realize that when they portrayed a husband and wife and they were in the bedroom together, that they couldn't even have a single bed in there. They had to have twin beds. They didn't even want to give the illusion of two people being in the same bed together. And, I mean, they had two separate beds. I mean, uh, you go back and you look at, you know, Leave it the Beaver, you know, and, and Wally Knieber, or whatever his name was, you know, and, and all those things, and, and Ozzie and Harriet, and all those things. I mean, back then, it was, a, it was, it was too risque, it was too, uh, too bad in a moral sense to even show a man and a woman married in a bedroom with one single bed, giving the idea that those two sleep in the same bed together. They had to separate that out and keep it above board that they slept in two separate beds just to take the imagination out of it. Wow, have we come a long way in life. Man, those things are gone. You know why? Because the value system has changed. It's been changed. It's been changed very subtly, but it's been changed. We look now and we see in our society, and this is the answer to a lot of things. We look in our society and the world talks about life. Man, the world, they put, the, they put life as the highest, uh, the highest priority. I mean, they, uh, you know, they look at all the people being killed in Africa and all these places. We send peacekeepers down there to, 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 and the people in destitute in, in life and all those things. And the same government, the same society that will go out and do that will, will murder unborn babies in the womb and not think anything about it. You know why? Our value system has changed. I mean, it was a time when the word homosexual was a word that was never used in public. I mean, it was a closet word. Nobody wanted to know. I mean, you go back in the 1800s and, and show me Gay Pride Week. Go to the 1900s. There wasn't any. But you see, it's changed. And now, it's not only that they want it to be an accepted lifestyle, it pretty much is an accepted lifestyle because of our value system has changed. We've got starving people out in our own country in this city. 
who don't have any place to stay, who don't have anything to eat, and it's true around this country, and we're spending $50,000, $100,000 because some sperm whale got trapped in an ice floe someplace and can't get back to his family. Now, what is wrong with that? Kill him, cut him up, eat him, make oil out of his blubber, whatever. It's unbelievable. I step back sometimes and I say to myself, what is wrong with this country? I mean, we live in a country now where if a crime takes place, the criminal has all the rights and you as a victim don't have any. They've done their job. They've done their job. In the last 70 years, Satan, through his unregenerate man, and the Bible says there's many devices in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. But unsaved man, through the, through the value system of an unregenerate mind, an unregenerate heart, has worked. The devil has used him. And the process has not only destroyed America by changing the definitions and changing the value system. I mean, you can't change the value of things without changing the definition. Now, we today in America, we have forgotten what once was the true values. And uh, we've come now in our own lives where uh, we don't understand the values of things. We don't understand what is going on in America. And all the definitions have changed. What's once was valuable, like the family. What's once was held up and valuable, like marriage, is now destroyed. And uh, that's why uh, this country's in such a mess. Now, it would be one thing if it just stayed in the unsaved world. But unfortunately... Whatever happens in America in the secular world in time creeps into Christianity. It's just the way that it is. And of course, the secular humanist, part of his plan is to destroy organized religion. To set up the values of humanists over the values of the Word of God. And I might say they've done it just as well in Christianity as they have in... I bring it to your attention to again. We talked about it Thursday night. What is wrong with a country that has to elect a gay bishop within their church? Where, where do you get that from? Now, I'm not fighting anybody, but I'm just saying, come, show me in the Word of God where, 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 where that's okay. And that is the extreme. But we see it not only in those kind of churches, we see it in all the churches. And I must say this. If you know your Bible... You know that the Bible says in Revelation chapter 3, where it deals with the Laodicean church, you understand very clearly that the mark of the Laodicean church is the church that's had its value systems changed. It says back there, and we don't have to turn back to it, you can look it up on your own, but it says back there that that church, speaking for itself, says, we've increased with goods, we have all these things, we don't need anything. And God says back to them, you need to look at the true riches, and you need to get gold tried in the fire. Because the church today has the wrong value system. And having the wrong value system, I promise you, they have the wrong definition of things. I'll show you what I mean. Now, when I look at Nehemiah chapter 2 and 3 down here, and I've told you this before, you have a picture of the church today. That's what God does. God will take a story in the Old Testament, and if you know the New Testament principles, you can go back to the Old Testament and read that story, and you can just see all of those things are down through there. Uh, for instance, I'll give you an example. If you go back to Exodus chapter 12, you have a picture of the nation of Israel being brought out by the blood. And uh, it's in Exodus chapter 12, it's the redemption of the nation of Israel. And we even sing the song in our hymnals, When I see the blood, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass, I will pass over you. And back in Exodus chapter 12, there's an example where the, the Jew is told to put the blood on the door. And when he's told to put the blood on the door, when judgment comes, that God spares anybody that's got the blood on the door. Now, in an Old Testament scenario, that actually happened. They had to put the blood on the door. Or the firstborn died. Now that's a beautiful picture. In fact, it's such a beautiful picture, I call it the gospel according to Exodus. Because it's a picture of Christ dying for you in the cross. Now, they had to take the blood of a lamb without spot, just like Christ was. And if you didn't put the blood on the door, the firstborn died. Christ was the firstborn of God. He's the first begotten of the dead. And when they took that blood, they had to put it on the top, the side and the side. Now, whoever, whoever saw that saw Calvary. You got one thief over here, one thief over here, and the Lord of glory on the top. You see, that's a picture. 
The whole Testament's laid out like that. But you wouldn't understand the picture if you didn't have the New Testament principle. And the whole Old Testament, we could go from Genesis and walk through, and we will in time as we study the Bible together. Uh, we will come through and you'll see picture, and that's how you learn the Bible. Now in Nehemiah, you have another picture. Just as clear as that. And the picture is, Nehemiah goes out and he sees Jerusalem, the city of God. The plan of God in disarray because men have come in in an unregenerate state and destroyed it because God's people didn't do what was right. I look at that and I see the church. Just as Jerusalem was the plan of God in the Old Testament, the church is the plan of God in the New Testament. Just as New Jerusalem was the focal point in the temple of all the worship, your body in this church is the focal point of, of, of all things that God is going to do. And just like unregenerate man, Nebuchadnezzar, Shennacherib, and all the Gentile kings destroyed that plan when he took it over, the humanist today in their unregenerate mind by the same way has destroyed the body of Christ to the place that in both cases the plan of God is shut down. And people are not getting saved the way they used to get saved. The plan of God is at a standstill. Oh, and I talk about the fact that, oh, but we've got great churches. Yeah, we got, just because you have a bunch of people in the building does not mean you have a New Testament local church by the Bible definitions. We've lost the definitions. We've lost the definitions. My job as pastor is to hold those definitions before you and to teach them to you. Now, I want you to see this. I want you to see the mess that it's in. Look at Nehemiah chapter 2. Just come back uh, one chapter and look at verse 13. Now this is Nehemiah talking here. And he says, I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, and to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain, and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then went I up in the night by the brook, and viewed the wall, and turned back, and entered by the gate of the valley, and so returned. Somebody says, now, what's he talking about? Oh, what a beautiful picture. First of all, you notice he says night three times. Now, why didn't he just say it once? I mean, come on, what's the big deal about it being at night? If you had said it the first time, I would have gotten it. I would have realized that it was nighttime when he was doing this. There's more to it than that. If you know your Bible, you know that the Bible says that night in the Bible is a picture of the church age. Jesus Christ, when he comes, the Bible says he comes as a what? As a thief in the night. In Mark chapter, in Mark chapter, uh, uh, Mark chapter four, as you come down through the, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter six, as you come down through the uh, uh, that passage, you'll find that there's four watches, and those watches represent the church age, starting at six o'clock in the evening, Jewish time, all the way up to six o'clock in the morning, and in the fourth watch, in the middle of the night, the Bible says the Lord comes back. What you got here is a picture of the church age. What you got here, he told you three times, it was night showing you that he's going down and he's looking at the destruction and what is taking place in this city and it's nighttime and it's picture inspirationally of looking at the destruction of the church what has been destroyed in the 20th century by unregenerate man with his ideas coming in and destroying the values of the church. Now look at this. Look at this. Now saying all of that, he says this. He goes out. He goes out. The valley gate. We already talked about that. That's the place of despair. That's what we talked about where the church needs to have compassion uh, for people who come in who are, who are having all kinds of problems. And it, it's very instructive that when he comes out to view it, he comes out through the valley gate because that's where the city of Jerusalem was. It was in despair. It was, it was a mess. It was all, all tore up. And he tells you there that the walls are broken down. The gates have been burned. So he has to come out that gate of despair. The valley gate. He goes down past the dung gate. And he tries to go back in the fountain gate by the king's pool. Now, I don't know what you know about that, but in the Old Testament, the fountain gate was went into the king's pool. And it represents the place of fellowship. In a spiritual sense, the fountain represents the, the, the flowing, bubbling water of the Word of God that just energizes. And, and that pool was the pool where, by the king where everybody came and they met. And it's a place of fellowship. We talk about it today. Everybody likes to have a pool party. You got a pool in your backyard. You invite all your friends over. You sit around the pool and you have a great time of what? 
fellowship. Well, that's not biblical fellowship, but biblical fellowship, when you see it, is going to be having a pool party with God. But he can't get in the fountain gate. It's all black. The camel can't get down and get under. It's such in disarray. He can't get in through the fountain gate, so he's got to go back up and go back in the gate of despair, the valley gate. It shows me that the church has no concept of fellowship and has no concept of worship today. Not only is it in a mess, but it has no understanding and definition of fellowship and worship. And the church can't get in. And we've lost the doctrinal truth of what it means to have a real worship with God and real fellowship with God. You know, if you'd ask the average Christian what worship was, and you'd say to them, tell me what worship is, you'd get as many different answers as the people you ask. I dare seem to say that there's not too many people that would open up a Bible, take you to the verse that defines it and says, this is what the Bible says worship is, therefore, this is worship. You'd hear things like this. Well, I believe when you pray, you worship. I believe singing is worship. Somebody say, well, I believe, you know, that uh, uh, we have a worship service and we, when we meet together for church, we're here to worship. And somebody else would say, well, I, as I said earlier, well, I worship God when I give my tithe to give my offerings. I've seen churches say, hey, look, come on tonight, we're going to have a worship service. And what that does, it gives you the concept that you can't worship outside getting together. Or worship is something that you have to do. Now, I want you to take your Bible, and what we're going to do today on this gate is we're going to define worship, and then we're going to define fellowship. Take your Bible and turn to John chapter 4. I'm not interested in giving you my opinion on what worship is, because my opinion, if it goes against the Word of God, would be wrong. I'm interested in giving you God's opinion. I've told you time and time again. The only thing I'm interested in life is showing you what God's opinion is on every subject that you're going to have to deal with. And you know what? You're going to have to be man enough or woman enough to deal with it on that basis. But that's my job. Now, John chapter 4, we have the great chapter of the woman at the well. What a great chapter. What a great story. And in this story, you know the story, or you should know the story. I'll recap it for you. Jesus goes down there and there's a woman by the well. And he's thirsty. He's not really thirsty, but he says he's thirsty because he wants to get this woman into a conversation about her soul and talk to her about living water. And they converse back and forth, and they talk back and forth, and Jesus tells her about the water he has, and she doesn't quite understand it. And in verse 21, he says this, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Now, that's an Old Testament concept. Because right now, they're worshiping in Jerusalem in an Old Testament scenario, in an Old Testament sense. Verse 22, Ye worship, you know not what. For you know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. Here comes the definitive verse in the Bible on what worship is. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must, must, not if you want to or not, must, not if it's okay with you today, or not if you don't got better. You must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now let's talk about that. Spirit. You have to be saved. When you got saved, you got God's Holy Spirit inside you, and it becomes one with your spirit. But you still have a human spirit. And that human spirit will lead you right or lead you wrong. You struggle with the flesh all the time. That spirit is one with God's spirit, but you can still make the wrong decisions. So there has to be something that anchors that spirit to the right thing. It's truth. Truth. You say, what is truth? Pilate asked the same question in John chapter 17, verse 17 to Jesus. You know what his answer was? Jesus says, thy word is truth. So you've got to have two elements in your life to have worship. First, you've got to have the spirit of God inside you. Then you've got to have the truth of God inside you to keep the spirit inside you between the white lines. Hey, I know my spirit. I know my spirit. 
I mean, I, I know we all have emotions, we all have feelings, and they all are a part of our spirit. And those can run us astray. We can see something and we want to believe it's spiritual, we want to believe it it's God, we want to do this, we want to do that, where in actuality it has nothing to do with the Word of God or nothing to do with God. And so we expend tremendous amounts of energy of our spirit. God knew that. God knew that, so that's why he said, look, if you're going to worship me, you must, 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 must worship me in spirit and truth. you got to have both. You can't have one without the other. And if you're trying to worship God in your spirit and you're ignoring what the plain teaching of the Word of God says, you're not worshiping. You're doing your own thing. God fixed it when he said that. He fixed it for time and eternity that a man or a woman can't just get up and do whatever they want to do in the name of God if it isn't found in these scriptures and laid clearly out in these scriptures that puts it right where it needs to be. The Bible says that these two things should dwell in you. First of all, the Spirit of God. What, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. If you're saved this morning, the Holy Spirit of God lives right inside you. And the Holy Spirit of God takes up residency in your body. He seals your soul and He's one with your spirit and your soul. But my friend, you're still human and you have an old sin nature. And there's times that you, you can get confused because you have emotions. And emotions get caught up with things. And you can get caught up with the wrong emotions and the wrong feelings. And that's why God had to give you something else that would keep you straight. And that's the truth. You see... He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, talking about the Word of God, he says, we have the mind of Christ. Then he says over in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, he says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. He says in Colossians 3, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. The Word of God is to be inside you. That's why we teach the Bible. That's why we're so sticklers on the doctrines of the Bible. That's why we're so we're particular about everything the Bible says. Because I'm telling you, true biblical worship is based on your being saved and having the Spirit of God and then having the Word of God that tells you what you're feeling, whether it's the right feeling or the wrong thing or a biblical feeling or just a nice warm fuzzy feeling. That's the key. Hey, worship has nothing, understand this, worship has nothing to do with what you do. You say, well, I, I believe that I can, I can believe that you can worship God in singing. Didn't say you couldn't. I just said singing wasn't worship. Well, I believe you can worship God in, I believe you can worship God in tithing. I didn't say you couldn't. I just said that that's not worship. Let me tell you something. Worship is not something that you do. Worship is something that you are. And if you tithe, and you sing, and you do all the other stuff that your Christian's supposed to do without understanding worship and realizing that the Spirit in you and the Word of God is the root of that worship, you're wasting your time. Worship comes from understanding that you worship God 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's not a service. It's not something that you, well, I'm going to worship God with my tithes and your offering, or I'm going to worship God by coming to church this morning. Hey, you can come to church this morning if you're already worshiping and worship God and all those things. But if you think just coming and doing those things is worship, you're wrong. Worship is a state of attitude of heart. You worship God 24 hours a day, seven days a week, everything you do. It's not something you flip on like a light, flip off when you go home. And that's what we like to do. That's what the mindset of the church is today. We'll go to God and worship and then we'll go out and do whatever we want to do on the way home, whatever we want to do the rest of the week, and then we'll come back to church and we'll just worship God. Or we'll just have a nice worship service. And everybody will feel fuzzy. Everybody will feel good. Everybody will feel happy. And then when you leave, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you wonder why you're down in the dumps. You wonder why you have the problems that you have. I'll tell you why. You don't understand the definition of worship from the Bible. It's spirit and truth. You have to have the spirit of God inside you and the word of God to guide you. That's worship. It has nothing to do with what you do. It has to do with what you are. And when you are the right thing, then everything you do is worship. Driving your car, raising your kids, going to your job, it's all contained when you have the right attitude and the right definition. 
Well, you see, we're in a church today that we don't understand that. Nobody reads the Bible anymore. Nobody believes the Bible anymore. Everybody says, oh, I've got a Bible and I take it to church. But you know what? I just do whatever I want to do in spite of what it says. I've never, I have never talked to a person that was screwed up on some doctrine in the Bible. In all my years, I have never talked to a person, male or female, in my life, who was screwed up on some doctrine in the Bible or something in their life that ever could go to the Bible and really prove why they believe what they believe. It was always, well, my preacher said this, or I read this, or I heard that. Nobody takes the time to investigate what the Word of God says to find out if what you're doing is the right thing. That's the legacy in church today. That's where we're at. And that's why, for the most part, we are playing church instead of being a church. We have all the right things in the right places, but the thing that is missing is the internal thing, the spiritual thing, that what you are, not what you do. Worship is a state of mind. It is an attitude of heart. Jesus said, if you love me with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your strength, that's worship. Every day, 24 hours a day. You worship Him in everything. But you just don't drive down the street and worship Him because of the flowers or worship Him because of a nice sunny day. You're worshiping based on what the Word of God says that you know in a world that is corrupt and ungodly and unregenerate, you have an absolute standard that tells you exactly what God thinks. Oh, I'm happy today. I'm happy tomorrow. No matter what the day brings. Because I have a book that tells me the truth in a world that has no truth. Now, if you were to ask the average question, what is fellowship? You'd get the same answer. You'd get as many answers as you get people you ask. They say, well, fellowship is after church, we all go down to, you know, whatever to eat and have a good time together, and we put all the tables together, and we, uh, we pray for we eat, you know, and it's just Christians, and, and we, we fellowship together. Well, uh, okay, that's a form of fellowship, but that's not fellowshipping with God that I'm going to talk about. Somebody says, well, when we come together, you know, we, we fellowship as believers. Well, okay, that's fine, but let me tell you something. It's just like worship. You have to understand the root of fellowship. Fellowship is not something, again, it's not something that you do. Fellowship is the byproduct of your worship. You have the right worship, you'll have the right fellowship. If you don't have the right worship, you don't got the right fellowship. Now, the Bible defines fellowship just like it defines worship. 1 John chapter 1. I'll take my word for it. Let's just go and see what the Bible says. 1 John chapter 1. He says in verse 1, of 1 John, not the gospel now, the one with a little I in front of it, 1 John. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the word of life. Now, notice how closely this goes along with the Gospel of John, which says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same as in the beginning with God, all things were made by Him, and on down through there. It, John, the same John wrote both. He wrote the Gospel of John, and he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But 1st John mirrors so much. One he's talking about here, he says, That which was from the beginning. That's Christ which we have heard, he heard him, which we have seen with our eyes, they saw him, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, they touched him. What was his name? The word of life. The word of life. The Gospel of John says, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He says here, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. The word of life. For the life was manifest, and we have seen it. And bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is down at Shoney's way after the service. No. And truly our fellowship is with all of our friends getting around and having a good time on Saturday night before we go to church. No. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Oh, there it is. You know what the right worship produces? It produces the right fellowship. You know what the right fellowship produces? It produces something this world needs so desperately, and Christians need it even worse. It produces joy. You know there's a great difference between...
between joy and happiness? You know what happiness is put on the word, it comes from the word happenings? You're happy by what happens. I mean, you have a good day, you're happy. You go out and you win, a, uh, win some prize, you're happy. Go out and somebody go to work and somebody compliments you on how nice you look, you're happy. You go out and it's cloudy outside, you're bummed. You go to work and somebody says, what happened to your hair this morning? Get caught in a tornado, you're not happy. You go out and you, and you look at this and you get, somebody bangs up your car and you're not happy. You see, joy doesn't know any of those things. Joy is based not on happenings. Joy is based on your fellowship with God, your worship with God that produces your joy. And when it's done right, your joy is full. And there is nothing in this life that can deter that. I don't care who steals your truck. Right, Jimmy? I don't care who burns down your house. I don't care what happens. I don't care what transpires in your life. It may be there, and you may weep, and you may cry, and you may grieve. But deep down inside, you will have joy. Well, don't have that. That's why people kill themselves. You will find happy people will commit suicide in time. Because what's happy today? Look at the movie stars. They got everything. They got all, look at the athletes. They got everything. <clears throat> Why do they keep going for more and going? Because they're, they're not, it doesn't satisfy. Happiness isn't real. Nobody ever committed suicide that had joy. The joy comes from God. And here he says that it's your fellowship that makes these things right we unto you, that your joy may be full. But we still haven't defined it yet. We're just getting close. This then is the message. All right? This then is the message which we have heard of him. And declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. All right? That's the thing that's stated about God. There's no darkness in God. There's no sin in God. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, oh, here's the killer, as he, not kind of like him, not almost like him, not sometimes, walk in the light. And the Bible says, thy word is a lamp under my feet and a light under my path. The light there is the word of God. But if you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all. 
Thank you. 